Many times, Christians are like colanders. See a couple guys look, looking at me, you know, wondering what that is. My wife, she has a pot at home where she cooks spaghetti. You know, it's tall. It's a bucket, but it's metal. And inside that metal bucket is another metal bucket that's full of holes, right? A colander, a sieve. And so we come to church and we are like that colander in the pot. We are full of water. I mean, we are worshiping the Lord. We have, you know, we're, we're singing praises to him. We have our Bibles in our laps. We have our, our pens in our hands. We are full of worship and praise for our God, and we should be. And then when we leave church, it seems sometimes that it leaks out. And that could be because we're looking at ourselves and, and thinking, okay, I got to go and do better. And so that worship just leaks out. What we need to do is really stay focused on what we were focused on in church and continue to praise God even as we leave here. So my intention for today is that, that you would know how not to be like a colander, how not to have your worship leak out. And so there's going to be an object of focus that when you leave here, if you keep your, your minds on this object of focus, which is God, then you could worship him when you're at work, when you're with your family, when somebody snaps at you. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 John. We'll be in 1 John today, this morning. <clears throat> We'll be in chapter 1, starting in chapter 1. So 1 John, this is written by the Apostle John. He's the last surviving apostle, wrote at the end of his life. Now the first four verses, he labors hard to let you know that he was with Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He saw him, he heard him, he beheld his glory, he touched him. This is the one who is giving us the message today. John wrote this while he was in Ephesus. And as you may know, this uh, city has a lot of biblical history to it. And he's writing this letter to give proofs of a Christian life. He wrote this in the 90s. I don't mean the dot-com bubble or, or MTV. Just this, the 90s. Not 1990, just the 90s. And there's a big clue that this letter was written after the Gospel of John. Because in chapter 2, he talks about this new commandment, but he doesn't give you a definition for what it is because you're supposed to know in chapter 13 in the Gospel that this new commandment is that you would love one another. So, as I said, Ephesus has a lot of biblical history to it. You may remember Ephesus from the book of Acts in chapter 20 when Paul was on his missionary journeys. And he goes to the edge of the city and he calls the elders out. And he tells the elders there that, that savage wolves would come up from among them at his departure. Now, apparently this must have been true by the time John was writing this letter. And people were 
uh, a little bit confused from these savage wolves. In fact, John considers them, he refers to them as antichrists in this letter. So the confusion in the church was, how should we live before God? How should we live among the church? And what is it that we should believe? And so John writes this letter as an encouragement. I'm hoping today this message to you will be an encouragement to you, to your soul. And he wanted the church to know. He wants you to know certainly so much so that at least nine times in the letter, he says, he writes this so that you would know. He wants you to certainly know. By this, you will know. It's a very pastoral letter. He's encouraging, even as he encourages uh, church involvement, he calls it fellowship. Now, there's many purpose statements in this letter, but the main one is just like in the Gospels, we see at the end of the letter. And in chapter 5 and verse 13, he tells us why he writes the letter. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. As he writes the letter, there's these threefold themes that keep coming around over and over and over again. In this letter, he teaches that you ought to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You have to uh, love one another and you must live a righteous life. And so these three just keep coming at us like a, the, the threads of a screw or a spiral. They just keep coming at you. <clears throat> the passage this morning is really going to start our focus on God. And it's going to give us a, a partial yet a sufficient picture of God. You see, God is infinite, right? And we are finite. So uh, we can't really see God or, or understand God as he is in his entirety at one time. We, we're just two finite creatures. It's as if you may have heard a, a man got three blindfolded men to go and, and touch an elephant and to describe what it is that they touched. And so the first man goes up and, and he touches the trunk and he says, this is a tree. And the second man, he goes up and, and touches the, the tail and he says, this is a rope. And the third man touches the, the body of the elephant and he says, this is a wall. You see, they're all describing the same elephant, but just from different perspectives. In one sense, God is too big for us to grasp all at one time. And so we're going to get one little, one angle at who God is. In fact, what God is, but it is sufficient. In fact, it's clear. God's word is very, very clear that we could understand. And so our passage this morning is going to be from chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 2. Now, the reason we're going to break through the, the chapter is because what John does, he gives us his first statement in verse 5. This is the umbrella statement, right? And so after verse 5, he gives us three pairs of conditional statements, three pairs so six and seven are going to go together. Eight and nine are going to go together. And then 10 is going to go together with verses one and two. This is just the way that he wrote it. 
And it makes sense because we're going to see that the first of those pairs, for example, verse 6, is a hypothetical situation in the church. Whereas the second one is a true statement. And that's really going to help us to understand. So if you would, follow along in your copy of God's Word. And I'll start reading from verse 5. God's Word says, And this is the message we have heard from Him and declared to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So he starts off by giving us a worldview in verse 5. This worldview that God is light. This is going to shape how we think. This is going to shape how we worship. This shapes our very lives. This truth affects every Christian that God is light. So... With that, I've titled the message this morning simply, God is Light. Your Bibles probably have that title in there for you already. But God is Light. This is the message. This is from John who heard and saw and touched. And he's declaring to us that God is Light and there's no darkness at all in Him. Now, What does that mean that God is light? It does not mean that he is some uh, photometric beam that you can measure. You know, he's not physical light. Light travels at, at a speed, at a rate, right? So there's a limit to light. God has no limit. So he's not talking about something that could be measured. Rather, when it says God is light, it's referring to his moral uprightness. His, he is upright. He is righteous. You could say he's godly. He's good right? This is, God is light. Many times, you know, we we might have comfort saying, you know what, this is good because God is in control. But it's not only that he's in control, it's that he's also light. That's that's coupled together with his goodness and his uprightness. We know that he's going to do what's right. Now, what makes a thing right? Is God going to wake up one morning? He doesn't sleep, but is God going to wake up one morning and say sin is right? No way. He doesn't choose what's right. He is right. God is light. It is who he is. It is what he is. And this message that God is light is a message of hope and encouragement to you. 
In fact, Paul, when he was speaking to King Agrippa, he was just affirming what the Old Testament had already taught, that Christ would suffer and resurrect. And he was going to resurrect to proclaim light and to give a message of hope and everlasting life to all who would believe that Jesus is Lord, who would love one another, and who would live an upright life. But the fullness of this light is God pressing near to you in Jesus Christ. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I was talking to a new believer as I was studying this, and I thought it would be helpful uh, for us to talk about, you know, God is light. So, so I, you know, asked him, I said, hey, will you read this? He read it. I said, what does that mean? And I thought he was going to ask me a question. You know, so I said, what does that mean? God is light. And he looked at it and he said, well, darkness is sin. So God is light. God is upright. He said, yeah, that's right. I've been studying this for a week and you nailed it in two, two seconds. Because this is clear, this message is so clear that you can get it. You can understand this. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So there's no no death, no blindness to God. There's no sin. So that means then that there is no injustice with God. So then it is right for God to pour out his wrath on sinners. It's right for him to pour out his wrath on those who are are pretending to worship, those who claim to be Christians, but they're not. It's right to God to pour out his wrath on those who, who profess, but yet they walk in darkness. Those who do not have the truth, those who do not have the word in them. So how must you respond to this message that God is light? So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, there are three encouragements that God is light so that you might not sin. There's three encouragements. So this first encouragement we see in verses 6 and 7, it is, we could call it God is light and your fellowship with one another. God is light in your fellowship with one another. Now, this is the first pair of the three conditional statements. And so he says, the hypothetical comes first. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. If you are walking in darkness, that means that you are are walking in sin. You're walking in death. Now, scripture talks about three different types of death, right? There's a spiritual death, those who are who don't know God, there's a physical death when your heart and your brain stop, and there's an eternal death which lasts forever and ever when God pours out his judgment on those who reject him and reject his son. But if you walk in darkness, you're walking in this spiritual death. You're living as if you're not a Christian. And if you're living this way, you'll feel the guilt and the shame pressing down on your conscience from the God who is pressing near to you in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Light and darkness, they don't mix. Right? They can't be in the same place at the same time. That is true, but...
But the, the point of this text is not simply that, that they don't mix, light and darkness don't mix. The point of this passage is that where there is light, darkness will change. So if you walk in darkness, we lie and we do not do the truth. This is the, a person who, who thinks they can convince God that sin was their only option. They think they could convince God that it, it wasn't their fault that they sinned. It was the other guy who started it. This person who's not living in the truth is really presuming on God's grace. They're, they're claiming Christianity without the power of Christ. So that's the hypothetical. And they have no fellowship with him. Fellowship. What is fellowship? There's this sense of sharing there, uh, a, a partnership. Even, even in business, there, there are uh, business fellows even. Here's what fellowship is. It's more than a secular friendship. It's more than a camaraderie. But rather, there's fellowship that is based upon the proclamation of the apostles. It's built upon the saving and transforming work of Jesus Christ. So that you might live this breath of your life in the power of Christ. You could say fellowship comes from hearing the gospel, whereby you are humbled by it, so much so that it has an effect on your life. It's the proclamation, salvation, and the transformation. It's the whole package. This is what fellowship is. Look with me at uh, verse 3. Because it tells you that if you have fellowship with the church, it's the same as fellowship with God and, and the other way around. But he says uh, that he proclaims this so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is a high fellowship. Now, sinners do not desire the holiness of God. They don't desire fellowship with God. Sinners are not able to establish fellowship with God. And God cannot receive such filthy fellows. When I was an electrician, as it was pointed out earlier, I had these neodymium magnets. These are the strongest magnets ever. And they're about an inch square. And you, know, they, you could not pull them apart. So when I was at work, I'd find the guy whose muscles were bulging out of his shirt I said, hey, tough guy, pull this apart. And so he would, you know, twist and turn, and he's trying and grunting and doing crunches, and he could not get it apart. They're, they're really that strong. The only way you could get them apart is if you slid them. That's right, so the magnetic doesn't attract. So I thought, well, what if I turn it the other way around? Surely I could push it together. And so, no, you can't push those together either. And I, I twisted it a little bit. And the other side actually attracted and smacked together and it broke. It shattered it like a rock. These are strong magnets. You have a better chance of pushing those magnets together than a sinner wanting fellowship with God, the thrice holy God. To have fellowship, you must have something in common. 
What does man after the fall have in common with God? Nothing. Nothing in and of ourselves. But John proclaims to you that eternal life, that Jesus Christ, who is God, became flesh so that he might have flesh and blood in common with us, with you. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said that God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers, get this, of the divine nature. What does man have in common with God? Well, with Christ, everything. It's our flesh and our nature. Look with me at 2 Corinthians. Let's look what Paul had to say about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 because he asked this rhetorical question. And he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with the darkness. Light and darkness have no fellowship. There's nothing in common. John would later go on to to describe this fellowship as a a mutual abiding back in the letter. In chapter 3, verse 24. And the one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. We know that we know by this that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he gave us. So for you, brothers and sisters, fellowship is more than just knowing about Christ. It's more than just professing to be a Christian. Rather, fellowship is the richest when you authenticate that God has enabled you to live an upright and moral life in fellowship with him. A lot of times this gets cut off of of the gospel. You know, we say God gives us grace to save. Yes, that's true, but he also gives us grace to obey him. And so fellowship, really this upright life then, is the, the medium or the conduit where fellowship with God is the richest. And in fact, it's authenticated. Is your life yours or is it God's? Have you not been bought by the blood of Christ? Verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, he was contrasting light and dark earlier, and now he's, he's contrasting even fellowship with, with darkness. Because... God is light. You will have fellowship with one another. And his blood will cleanse us from all sin. Now, this blood, this is not a a magical term. You know, some, some churches will just, you know, they love saying that word, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. This is not a, a magical chant. Rather, This is a a figure of speech that is to get our minds to the point of the crucifixion of Christ. This is to get us to think of 
his substitution for us where he satisfied God's wrath and he made the payment for sin. You see, when Christ was on the cross, he took your robe of sin and shame and guilt and he put it on. And he took his robe of light and righteousness and he put that robe on you by faith. And one day, one day, he's going to give us a robe of glory when we will worship him freely and without sin. This message is a message of hope and encouragement to you. So we've seen that God is light in your fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. And now we look at our second encouragement. God is light and your forgiveness of sin. And so this now begins our second pair of conditional statements. The first one, again, being hypothetical and the second one being true. He says in verse 8, if, if, we have no, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hmm. To say you have no sin is to say that you have no need for the gospel. To say you have no sin is to say that you have no need for Christ. To sin is to live as if God is not God, as if you are in control, as if you have more power than God, as if you can even hide your sin from God. It should come to no surprise to you that as you look at all of Scripture, Every chapter of the Bible talks about sin or sinners, except for the first two chapters and the last two chapters. God's creation and God's new creation. Would you shut your eyes to your own life experiences and say that there is no sin? Would you be a blind guy that would lead your own self astray? Have you not seen the multiple manifestations of sin in your life that are indicative of sin in your heart? Is not the one who hears more accountable to it? You see, if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Deception. Deception is a tricky thing. Even in the Old Testament, in the law, in Deuteronomy 22, there was a law where if, uh, if your neighbor's animal went astray, it was deceived. That there was, because animals are prone to be deceived. But you, you were supposed to, if you saw that animal, take it back to the owner's house because they're prone to be deceived. Sometimes, you know, you, you might have seen a, a, a long, young little girl, maybe a granddaughter or your daughter who, who thought she was a queen. And so she got a pillowcase and put it around her neck as a cape. She got a big bowl from the kitchen and put it on her head like a crown. And, and she started bossing everyone around, you know, with the broomstick. Go do this, you know. She's the queen. She's, and you'd probably pull out your phone and say, that's, that's cute, darling. Let me take a picture of that, right? But what about that 30-year-old or that 60-year-old at your work that does the same thing and they want to boss you around and tell you what to do? You're thinking, you're not even my boss. They're deceived. And brothers and sisters, that's how we are when we say we have no sin. 
we're deceived. It's, it's foolish from someone on the outside looking at it. But it says, so in verse, uh, verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confession, this is a humbling word. To confess, you, you must be humble. You must accept responsibility for the sin that you have committed. You must deal with your sin in your heart honestly. You must be genuine and sincere even as you deal with the sin in your own heart. When you confess, you're not presuming on God's grace. So in in one sense, you're being vulnerable to confess. But also, if you confess genuinely and sincerely, there will be an observable change in your life. I want you to write down how to do a good confession. If you have a pen, get your pen out. If you're married, you need, a, you need this. You need to know how to confess when you sin. If you're not married and you have friends, you need this because you're going to sin against them sometimes. If, if you're here and you don't have friends, get a pen out because you're going to have friends one day. Soon, <laughs> soon. But you need this. I want to give you seven A's of a good confession. Very practical. And so seven A's, the letter A. And so, of course, you could do this uh, to God, but you could also do this to one another because our fellowship is also with God and with one another. So the first A is to address everyone involved. Address everyone involved. So husbands, if you snap at your wife and your children are there, and then you realize, oh, I've sinned, and you go to your wife and you ask for her forgiveness, you know what? Go to your kids too if they heard it. Address everyone involved. They need to know that you know it was wrong and God will be glorified from that. So number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. Avoid if, but, and maybe. You need to accept the full responsibility of your sin. So don't try to give yourself a loophole where, you know, 5% of it is someone else's fault. In fact, that's what started it. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Third one is admit specifically. You, you don't want to confess and just say, I've sinned. <laughs> Do you mean that? <laughs> yeah. So, so say what it is. Own it. And trust Christ. And trust the person you're confessing to that they, they might forgive you. But whether they do or not, that's not your responsibility. You must confess. So admit specifically. Uh, and then also acknowledge hurt. If you acknowledge hurt when you sin uh, to someone, because you're, you're the oppressor if you're sinning and they're the one that's oppressed in, in one sense. And so you acknowledge hurt. It's showing that you're sincere. Number five, accept the consequences. Ooh, that's tough. If you're going to confess, you don't get to tell the person that they have to forgive you. You see, it doesn't say in the Bible anywhere to teach your kids to say, I'm sorry. Because what, what you train your kids to do when you do that is they get to control what happens. Oh, I'm sorry. See you later. You know, no, you must confess and accept the consequences. Sometimes there are earthly consequences. Number six then is alter your behavior. If you really are sincere in your confession of your sin, the way you're dealing with it, you're, you're, you're not going to want to hurt that person anymore. 
And so your behavior will be altered. And then finally, number seven is to ask for forgiveness. And that takes vulnerability. You see, when you ask for forgiveness, it's as if you have this ball of authority in your hands, right? You've committed a sin. And so you must go to that person who you, you've sinned and you must throw them this ball of authority and say, will you forgive me? And they're going to catch it. Now they have a choice to either forgive you or not. And if they're your brother, they'll throw that ball back to you and say, yes, I forgive you. And there's this transaction that happens. And you don't have to talk about the sin anymore. Move on with life. Worship the Lord. Don't be like the, the colander where you start focusing on, oh, but I did this. Oh, but, but you did this. Let it go. It's gone. Worship the Lord together and have fellowship. Believe in Christ and love one another. So forgiveness, I do want you to notice though, forgiveness is not based on how good your confession is. It's not. If, you, if you're like me, you became a Christian when you were older in life. And so you, there's probably sins in your life that, that you just don't even remember. And so you could confess your sins, but there may be 300 that you don't remember. God still is going to forgive you. See, it says that <clears throat> if we confess our sins, good. He's faithful and righteous to forgive, you, forgive us. Yeah, our sins. You see, though, there's that little squiggly mark at the end of sin. If we confess our sins, that's plural, right? You need to confess all of your sins, but it's not perfectly because it is on, based on his faithfulness, his righteousness, that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, you need to trust in him and his righteousness and his grace. He will forgive you for all of it. We never want to put our trust in our own efforts, even in the way that we forgive. So we've seen that God is light in your fellowship with one another. We've seen that God is light in your forgiveness of sin. And now we come to the third pair of conditional statements. And this third encouragement is God is light and your freedom without wrath. And your freedom without wrath. And so you remember how it goes, right? The, the first one was the hypothetical. The second one was the true. You could say it this way the, in these pairs. The first conditional sentence is a description of an unbeliever. The second is a description of a believer. And so now we're going to start with our description of an unbeliever once again in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is showing the necessity that when you, this message, right? This message that it is in reference of God, but it is also for man. And so therefore sin must be addressed. Sin and its synonyms like darkness have already been referenced at least seven times in our short little passage. It's a big deal, but it's been mentioned as a noun, as like a coat, something you could take off. Whereas now he is mentioning it as a verb, as an action. If we say that we have not sinned, you see, before it was more of a picture form of sin. And now it's more of a video of sin. This is you actually engaging in the very act of sin. And so 
just as he magnifies the, the focus of sin, he magnifies the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 6. Look at the object of focus. So it says, and yet walk in darkness, we lie. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The deceitfulness of sin is ugly. It's ugly. The claim that sin makes about God is contrary to God. There's always an assertion that we make when we make our judgments, when we make our decisions whether or not to to sin or, or not to sin. Do you realize every ethical claim that you make, every judgment that you make, it asserts something about God. And so if, if we are like that colander where you take it out and you focus on yourself, we're going to live for ourselves. But if we are like that colander in the pot of water that's full of, of just focusing on God, then you will live in light of God and you will worship him in all that you do. There's really only two views about God. There's a true one and there's a false one. Look with me at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we'll see this uh, assertion really of, of murdering and, and lying that come from the same source. So it'll be John chapter 8 and verse 44. And this is Jesus speaking to the Jews, to those unbelievers. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see this correlation with murdering, even with with lying. This is what sin does. It's lying. So, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This message that God is light, this is a message of hope for you, but this message is not in us. If we say we have not sinned. If we love sin and its fleeting desires so much that we would rather sin than to worship God. If we have God's word in us, we will be humble to admit this sin. And more and more as we have God's word in us, then we will live and overcome sin. In fact, chapter 2, verse 14 of our letter says towards the end of it, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You see, there's a connection that if you have God's word abiding in you, you will be enabled to overcome sin and God will be glorified. And then he interjects in chapter two and verse one, he, he's now going to the true statement. You had unbeliever, believer, unbeliever, believer, 
unbeliever. And now once again, finally to the believer, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is his reference to the church. My little children, he uses it all throughout the letter. Later on, he'll go on to call them beloved. He is being sincere and genuine with him, with them, with you even. But he's writing so that you may not sin. And he's not telling you to stop sinning. Rather, he's telling you not to start sinning. You see, when we're tempted to sin, if our minds are focused and realize and and acknowledge that God is light, we won't start to sin. He's instructing our way of thinking. See, God requires change from those who hear this message. Change is required and God enables that change. What about you? How are you responding to this message that God is light? Will you receive it so that when you leave here, you can worship God and and bring him glory by your life? Or will you reject it for the passing and fleeting desires of sin? It's not acceptable to continue on in sin. We can't clock in for God time on Sunday and then leave and then clock in for our own time. Brothers and sisters, you must exert power over sin. You must control sin and not the other way around. The word says that you can and you must overcome sin. If you don't, you show that God who is light has no influence in your life. Your life speaks to those around you that says God is not powerful enough to change a person's life. You're a billboard that says that sin is more precious than God. The atrocity, the deceit, the error. May it never be. You must live an upright life. The bar is high, but it is so high that you cannot do it. So if you do sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, who is with the Father. You have an advocate. Listen, you don't want to leave here and trusting in your own works. You don't want to say, the preacher told me I need to live an upright life, so I'm going to focus on myself, and I'm going to go do it. You can't do that. You must trust in Christ. He is the advocate. You may know this word, advocate, back from the Gospel of John. In the chapters 14, 15, and 16 with the Holy Spirit, right? Only two times in scripture is this word used as a title for someone. The first time it was used was when Jesus Christ said that the Holy Spirit, he will, Jesus will ascend and he will send the Holy Spirit to be your advocate, to be your helper, to help you to overcome sin. The other time is used is here in John and he's referring to Jesus Christ and he says, he is our helper. He is our advocate and he will help us to overcome sin. You see, you have Jesus Christ face to face with the father in heaven. He is helping you. He is advocating for you. He is with God as a mediator because he is God and you have the Holy Spirit in your heart so that you can overcome sin. 
Jesus is the advocate. Jesus is the righteous one. That's why he can be there. You see, he is the mediator. So the father is looking at Christ when he should be looking at you and your sin. When the father considers you, he's looking at Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And when we consider how how good God is, we look to Christ because there we see his love for us and how he laid down his life for us so that we might repent and believe in him. And brothers and sisters, we're called also to love in the same manner. But Jesus Christ, he is the propitiation. So he's the advocate, but he's also the propitiation. Now, a point, a a note here. Do you remember where we are with the structure? I know it's a little confusing, but there's three pairs of conditional statements. There's a, a, the first one in each pair is an unbeliever. The second one is a believer. You with me? So unbeliever, believer. Now we're at the last one, unbeliever, believer, right? Listen to what it says here in the structure. In verse two, it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He's talking about believers. It fits with the structure of, his, of this passage. So he's not talking about of the whole entire world and everyone's going to get to heaven. No, there is wrath. John has been speaking of that already. But he is the propitiation. So Jesus satisfied God's wrath. God must, because he is light, pour out his wrath on sin and sinners. But Jesus has satisfied that fully. Now, propitiation is uniquely a New Testament word. You may remember in the Old Testament, they had the sacrificial system, right? The smoke rose up day and night. The the priests were constantly slaughtering these animals to sacrifice, to atone for their sin, but they never stopped. But Jesus, as the propitiation, is the once and for all sacrifice. So God's wrath truly has been satisfied. Sin has been paid. There's no need for another one, for another sacrifice. Restitution has been given to the one who is offended. That's God. When we sin, we offend him. We have nothing to do with the propitiation except for We are the full beneficiaries of its blessing. Do you remember in in Luke chapter 18? You could turn there if you'd like. And it's just a a parable. Luke 18, it's the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. So in Luke chapter 18, and in verse 11, it has the Pharisee who's praying to himself, right? I'm so glad I'm not like all those other folks. And then you have the tax collector. And in verse 13, it says, but the tax collector standing some distance away, you see, he's going to confess right now, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be propitious to me, the sinner. Satisfy God's wrath. 
You probably know it as be merciful to me. If you have the LSB, you'll notice the footnote there. The word there is be propitious, knowing that sin must be paid for. So John's message is one of hope and encouragement. From John who who heard and saw, beheld and he touched Jesus. And John is teaching us how to have fellowship with God and one another. This message that God is light is that God is morally upright and there's no darkness at all in him. Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. But in his loving kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the sin and the shame that you and I deserve so that, me, so that we might have fellowship with him. You see, the gospel message begins with the very essence of who God is. God is light. And because God is light, we don't need to be emptied of our worship when we leave here. Because God is everywhere. This message was was more about who God is and and what he has done in your life. So that you would leave here... not trusting in your own works, but trusting in God. So I hope your trust for God, that God is light, has increased so that you will praise him with your life. God is light and has given you fellowship with one another and him. God is light and he has forgiven all of your sins in Jesus Christ. God is light And he has freed you from the wrath to come so that you will trust in his saving and life-giving grace. Because Jesus presses near to you, you can walk in the light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this message that focused on who you are and what you are. I do pray, Father, that you would Help us as we leave here to always focus on you, praising you because you have forgiven us for all of our sins. Fill our minds and our hearts, Lord, with your goodness in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.